Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and I am very happy to be welcomed by Miguel Blacout, who is uh, one of the coaches at Revive Stronger. If you did not already know, I am incredibly disappointed and I've not been doing a good enough job of highlighting that fact. So now I'm going to highlight it further. He is one of the coaches at Revive Stronger and we're incredibly proud and happy to have him as one. And it's a way too long overdue catch up on how Miguel's doing, um, talking and picking his brain because he is incredibly smart and well-read uh, and well-averse in the literature. Um, so first of all, Miguel, why do you look like a different person? <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on, Steve. I appreciate that. And if you guys can't notice from the last time I was on the podcast, I've gotten my haircut for the first time in three years. So I, I, I can't recognize myself in the mirror half the time. I think there's an intruder in my house. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was an awesome transformation. Not the transformations that we're used to on, on these channels, but still a good one. It's funny. Me and Pascal were literally talking, I think it was yesterday, about how visually we've changed through doing that podcast like on a weekly basis and like there was periods of time when my face was like completely gone and i was orange and then i had my head shaved and then pascal's like had complete moon face at one point and he's kind of shrunk back down um so. i was thinking of that too because i was um so I'm, I'm in the process of kind of like creating a, a tattoo and i was kind of creeping pascal's page uh -huh. uh, to see like what tattoos he has and i was just like looking through like i, I was like all your faces like your shrunken face pascal's beard pascal's blow up face pascal now um and then of course he has like a ton of pictures with you so i was like wow steve's even i think your, your neck hypertrophy too <laughs> <laughs> yeah mine hopefully it has um hopefully i've hypertrophied more than just my neck but that does seem to be an area that's growing <laughs> and a lot of people are going to now ask me for my secrets and i'll just say go check out jeff nippard he seems to be the most popular talking about that that isn't something i'll talk about anyway before <laughs> we get too on a tangent um i do want to kind of first of all go over kind of what you've been up to the last few months miguel in terms of um I, lots of people hopefully are on watching your instagram where you put out fantastic content and I know you're kind of in the middle of kind of your studying, but you're also reading a study a day, which I think is fantastic and really commendable. Um, but also just kind of you've just recently recovered from your own injury um, and you're coming through that and now getting back into kind of the big lifts and things. So, yeah, just give us a bit of an update on what Miguel's been up to. Cool. So basically uh, right now I am finishing up my bachelor's degree in nutritional biochemistry at, uh, at McGill University. So that, that has been an awesome experience. I have learned a ton. And um, my plan is, is, was from the beginning to get a bachelor's degree in, in nutrition and then a master's and PhD in exercise science. The reason for that is that I believe that at least for within our sort of niche within a niche or very specialized dealing with very elite athletes, I think that a lot of our nutrition questions have been answered. I think that we know um, as long as we, we, we hit our macros, we, we get these vitamins, these minerals, and pick you know mostly wholesome, clean foods. Clean, that's a, that's a, I guess that's a trigger word. Uh, but we, we know that uh, those things are likely going to maximize most performance outcomes, at least for our group. But we still have a lot of exercise science questions. If you get down to it, we still don't even know what causes muscle hypertrophy. That is still being etched out, and I think that's going to be kind of the main the the, the main focus of our chat later on. So uh, basically, where where I'm at right now is that I will be starting my master's next year, and I have applied to Florida Atlantic University, to uh, University of South Florida, Columbia, and uh, uh, Auckland University of Technology. Now, I won't quite disclose where my top choice is because I don't think that's a smart idea just in case you never know where these universities are listening to. But, Steve, you know. Um, so, yeah, next year I will be beginning my, my master's in exercise science. I've already been admitted into one. Uh, so it looks like no matter what, it's, it's going to be a reality. And, yeah, so I actually read more than one study a day. I spend probably like two hours reading research, but I'll just post the one that I think people will relate the most to because a lot of it is, is very – um, it, it's more complicated. It's about, it's about chemistry work. It's, it's a lot of like molecular pathways that people might not be able to relate to. So that if you want to see one cool study that you can probably keep up with a day, uh, you can go to my Instagram. And then uh, in well, did you have any questions about any of that? No, 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 that all sounds really, really exciting and, yeah, really, really cool. And, yeah, probably just as well not to disclose on here because, yeah, you never know. Um, you have to be <laughs> you, careful you really on social don't. media nowadays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And then in terms of my uh, back, so I herniated a, a disc in my back between L4 and L5, um, I think uh, probably like two years ago now. Um, and I was just very stubborn about it, just trying to like lift around it. And then uh, about four or five months ago, I decided, okay, well, it's really time to do something because it, the, the pain was just unbearable at that point. So I contacted Dr. Quinn Hanock and he has been just incredible about it. And I remember in, in August, uh, I couldn't even like bend down to tie my shoe. Like that could set, set off a pain that would go from my, my fingertip down to my toe, just the most radiating of pains. And then yesterday was the first time I was actually able to deadlift a full plate and I'm squatting, I think, 80 pounds now. <laughs> so it, 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 it doesn't seem like, like, hey, like, oh, that, that, that weight's going to impress anyone. But from not being able to tie your shoe, I'm, I'm very, very happy. Yeah, that's uh, a big thing to overcome. I know um, it's funny, actually, all of us, yourself, me and Pascal, although mine's a long time ago now, my yeah. injury, but um, Pascal recently went, well, not recently, a year or so ago, went through his hip surgery um, and he couldn't squat and deadlift and he had to come out of that. And now you're kind of recovering out of what you're going through. And I think what we're just highlighting is there is everyone to a point will discover they're going to get an injury of some sort that's probably going to set them back quite a lot. And um, I'm sure it, right now it's probably lovely the fact you can go back in the gym and start doing things and then probably many months down the line probably like a year in future you'll be like I don't even remember being injured like what was this because sometimes I have to kind of remind myself God, I was nowhere even able to do this stuff like this is incredible like look how much weight and volume I'm now able to do um, oh my gosh yeah. yeah it's crazy I can't even imagine what it's like for you because a head injury that makes you know all these injuries seem like nothing yeah, it's I, I. Whenever I do think about it, I'm like I would have preferred to have broken my arm or something. But um, <laughs> it it led to a lot of good things. You can't really. I think mm -hmm. live, I'd never regret that what happened because we wouldn't be here today probably if that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um. So to talk about our first topic within kind of our discussion, that is a recent article that Miguel wrote that was fantastic and really well received over at our website revivestronger.com. Miguel is actually hopefully getting an article out every month for us which they're all very comprehensive. If you haven't kind of noticed that about Miguel, he doesn't talk um, any BS. He makes sure we've got all the references there. Um, everything there is things Miguel knows. Um, I think sometimes, and I was definitely one of these people in, in the past when I would write fitness articles or blogs, I would write them not really knowing what I was saying uh, to a degree. Uh, fortunately, nothing like that is on our website at the moment, but I have had blogs before this one where I was like that. So um, if you are looking to keep up with a good blog, this will definitely be one, one article a month. So anyway, the article that Miguel talked about was kind of why potentially we shouldn't be chasing soreness in the gym. Um, I think a lot of you are aware of delayed onset muscle soreness, that kind of pain that we feel maybe after we've done something like lunges in our glutes. This is kind of um, whether or not it's wanted. Uh, and whether or not it is a pathway to hypertrophy. Um, so I don't know if you, you kind of want to begin, Miguel, kind of what the old model of hypertrophy was, what's developing. Obviously, you already said that we don't actually know what causes hypertrophy at the moment, but we have some good kind of uh, data coming out at the moment. Right. Yeah. Perfect introduction to the topic. So in 2010, uh, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld wrote a, a seminal paper talking about uh, muscle hypertrophy being those being mechanical tension, muscle damage, and metabolic stress. Uh, briefly, uh, mechanical tension is pretty much what it sounds. It, it is a tension that you place upon your muscle fibers. If you, it's kind of weird to think about, but your muscles can't actually push on anything. Any pushing movement is actually called by is caused by pulling. Um, your muscles just kind of pull on joints and cause a pushing action. So just like in any sort of pulley system, uh, tension is going to be caused by the weight that is sort of at the end of, of, of that rope. And it seems that in, in order to keep gaining muscle mass, we need to keep kind of increasing that load and cause that progressive tension overload. Metabolic stress is the accumulation of the byproducts of something called the anaerobic glycolysis. And that is the energy production that your muscles go through uh, when they're deprived of oxygen. So very fast energy. And that causes the accumulation of hydrogen ions, it causes the accumulation of inorganic phosphate, and causes muscle hypoxia, which is the lack of oxygen. Um, and, and then further, um, muscle damage 
is those little micro tears in, 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 in the muscles that, that everyone has told. As soon as you step into the gym, people tell you, well, the way that you grow your muscle mass is by causing these little micro tears in the muscle, and then they're going to build back uh, they're going to build back stronger and bigger. So that is sort of what we're challenging here. It is the notion that we need muscle damage in order to get muscle hypertrophy. And it's been theorized because, of course, like scientists don't actually write in the literature. It causes your muscles to build back stronger and, and bigger. It's been theorized that this muscle damage can uh, start to initiate the immune system response that is needed in order for muscle hypertrophy, which is going to cause a secretion of growth factors and may have a, a an impact on on uh, satellite cell activation, which it's uh, for now it seems that that is needed for muscle hypertrophy, although that is being questioned too. So yeah, I mean it's I think the point you made there about the kind of uh, breaking it down to then cause it to build itself back up is something a lot of us have heard. Um, and where where are we seeing now the kind of main driver of hypertrophy being and what are like the, the practical implications of that? And kind of, I'll ask a follow-up question after that, actually. So right now, at least what... We don't have any, any like the, the research to make it conclusive, but it seems that pretty much all the things that we have compared to each other, if we look at studies on training frequency, on rest periods, on rest pause, on all, pretty much all variables that we can look at, it seems that the group that does the, the, the most amount of volume all, seems to be the one that seems to grow the most, at least within reason, right? If, if, I, if we get people and we make them do 60 sets, they might not grow more than people who do like 50 sets or, 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 or 30 sets. But within reason and within a high quality of training, it seems that um, the, the, the progressive tension overload mediated by increases in volume is the main driver of hypertrophy. At least that is a model that I will be proposing as sort of we, we talk about why I don't think the damage is a driver of hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. And then when we're thinking about and obviously when we train, some of the things that drive um, mechanical tension and progressive overload in that manner lead to muscle damage. So some people might be thinking like, how do I kind of practically go about this? How do I manage the fact that I'm trying to overload, but then overloading causes some of this soreness, but I thought soreness wasn't wanted. Kind of what's the, the practical recommendations to kind of coaches and trainees out there? So... I think that before we kind of get into that, I think it, it is a good idea to sort of like talk about why damage might not be the growth cool. because I kind of want to make the case against it before I start kind of telling people to not go into it because I want you to sort of believe what I'm saying or at least have the evidence to, to make the decision for yourself. So um, sort of where, where we can begin this is first of all by looking at, at growth that happens in the absence of damage. So if we look at something like blood flow restriction training, so in blood flow restriction training, what we are going to do is that we are going to occlude the, the proximal part of the limb, so the one that is closest to you, and we are going to prevent the venous return of blood without preventing the arterial blood from going to the limb. Now, what that is going to do is that is going to cause those, uh, the, those uh, metabolic byproducts that I just talked about to sort of fatigue the muscle fibers. And it's going to fatigue them in a way where it's going to probably cause greater fiber recruitment. Your, your muscles are going to have to recruit more muscle fibers at a lighter load. And because we are using light loads, we, are going to, we, we aren't going to quite induce so much damage. In fact, a lot of studies show that you can do blood flow restriction training without inducing muscle damage. Now, there was a meta-analysis by Lixandra et al. in 2018 that compared sort of all the studies that have compared uh, blood flow restriction training to, to high-intensity traditional training, the training that does cause a lot of damage. And they found that both, both, both training modalities cause very similar hypertrophy, except one causes it without damage and one causes a significant amount of damage. So in this sort of study, we get to see, all right, well, we have growth without damage. This, we have mechanical tension plus damage causing the same growth as just mechanical tension. So if we expect muscle damage to be a main driver, that's what we're saying. We're saying that muscle damage can cause muscle damage, can muscle damage can cause muscle hypertrophy, then we should expect to at least see a little bit more growth. Now, uh, the follow-up question is, does this go the other way around? Can we get muscle hypertrophy with damage but no tension? How can we do that? Well, if we look at marathon runners, a running step 
is is broken down into two phases. It's broken down into the the eccentric breaking, you absorbing uh, the force of the last step, and concentric propulsion. So the eccentric breaking is going to cause damage. Now, if we look at marathon runners, if we look at people who run downhill, we see a whole lot of, of muscle damage, but we don't see any muscle hypertrophy. Probably because there is no mechanical tension, because these steps are so quick, because you're just doing body weight stuff, there isn't a whole lot of mechanical tension. So we have growth with, with tension but no damage, but we have no growth when we have damage without tension. And if we are making the case that muscle damage is a primary driver of muscle hypertrophy, then we should probably see growth in this scenario. Then uh, there was kind of another study to, to sort of highlight this, and it was done, it was pro it's probably one of my favorite studies, it's done by Flonadol in, in 2011. And what they did is they took people through, in, through a, a protocol and they split them into two, group, two groups. One got a three-week intro block before an eight-week resistance training protocol. Now, an intro block is sort of, you start off sort of easy, lower intensities, maybe lower frequency, and this is sort of going to start to elicit the repeat about effect. The repeat about effect is a protective mechanism that your body has against muscle damage, actually. It's not quite fully 100% understood, but your body doesn't actually want to, to feel sore and like it's going to die after every resistance training protocol. So that's why you kind of start feeling sore. It's the repeat about effect. So the sort of familiarization intro block uh, starts to elicit that, that repeat about effect so that when the subjects start the eight-week training block, they don't have quite as much damage. And then one group just went right into the eight-week protocol and volume was equated. So the group that didn't get the intro block had to squeeze those 11 weeks worth of volume into just eight weeks. So what was seen here is that the group that didn't get the intro block saw significantly more muscle damage than the group that did. In fact, the group that got the intro block didn't have any detectable muscle damage whatsoever, but both groups got the same amount of hypertrophy. So we have volume equated, we have uh, and we have one group doing something that causes a lot of damage and one that doesn't. So when volume is equated, we see no differences in muscle hypertrophy, even though one group got a lot of damage and the other one didn't. So that kind of caused us to question, all right, well, does muscle damage actually have, have a role in muscle hypertrophy or does it, does it have something that mechanical tension by itself cannot, cannot deliver when it comes to muscle hypertrophy? Um, so those are sort of the, the, the three big, big studies that I, that, or, or three main topics that I kind of like to talk about when, when it comes down to why I don't think muscle damage uh, has, has an impact on muscle hypertrophy. And then my favorite study of them all is one that was done by Demosidol in 2016. What they did in this study is that uh, they, measured, they measured pretty much just the three big things that we're going to be talking about. They measured uh, muscle cross-sectional area, so that is actually just when, when if you cut a muscle fiber uh, kind of long, uh, kind of a, across, that is just really the increases that, that we can see, that, that those are the increases that we want. They measured muscle damage, and they measured myofibular protein synthesis. So myofibular protein synthesis is actually, when we talk about protein synthesis, yes, we're interested in that, but what really, really interested in is myofibular protein synthesis because that is a specific type of, 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 of protein that we want to grow uh, when we're talking about resistance training. And, and we, we need labs that kind of have that, that really good equipment that is going to be able to measure that. So when you see myofibular protein synthesis, you should kind of start to salivate over that study. So they measured these things, um, and they put the subjects through a, a leg training protocol where they did leg press, leg extension, and leg curl, I want to say, for 10 weeks. And they measured these three markers at week one, right after the, 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 the last training protocol. They measured it at week three and at week 10. So at week one, the researchers saw that both myofibular protein synthesis and muscle damage peaked. It was, it was the highest that they saw um, in, in, in the whole time that it was observed. But there is no increase in muscle cross-sectional area. There was no muscle hypertrophy. So, all right, a little bit weird. Protein synthesis, that's highest, but no, no increase in, in, in muscle hypertrophy. At week three, both uh, myofibular protein synthesis and, and muscle damage decreased. They remained elevated above, above baseline, but they decreased from the peak that they were at week one. But still no increases in muscle hypertrophy. So still a little bit weird. 
And then at week 10, what they found is that both myofibrillar protein synthesis and muscle damage decreased. Muscle damage went down to baseline, but protein synthesis remained elevated above baseline. And this was the first time that that uh, muscle hypertrophy was, was, was seen. It was the first time there was an increase in muscle cross-sectional area. So what we see here is that the only time that there is muscle hypertrophy is when protein synthesis remained elevated, but muscle damage returned to baseline. So it seems that at least to some extent, muscle damage can actually blunt the effects of hypertrophy. It probably has some deeply catabolic effects that can, that can, that, that, that can blunt that effect of, of, of myofluid protein synthesis, so much so that when protein synthesis was peaked and so was muscle damage, there was no, no growth. And this is seen in other studies where we see that people typically don't hypertrophy uh, at least until six to 10 weeks into a new training protocol. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because it kind of highlights the thought of um, or like the simple thing that people probably think about is like you don't grow in the gym you grow outside of the gym it's kind of and if you're not ever reducing the muscle damage the body's always having to repair this and never getting time to actually grow anything so I think that's a really good highlighted point and something I didn't it's probably a bit of a side tangent but you brought up BFR and how the study showing how sometimes it doesn't actually cause any muscle damage which I found really interesting because whenever I've done it and I don't know if it's the novelty effect or something along, the, along those lines I've always got horrendous soreness um, so I just I found that interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that at all. I, th I think that it can be the novelty effect because I think that, uh, like we're going to get into, just accumulating a lot of, of uh, a total load and, and and recruiting a lot of muscle fibers, making them uh, kind of kind of work a lot. That is going to cause mu muscle damage in and out of in and out of itself. But I think that if you were to do that for a long period of time, like if you were to work that into, let's say, two mesocycles, then that's where you would see uh, very low muscle damage, if any at all, uh, but no, uh, but, but you would see the same amount of muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, I wonder, I think it's quite common for those sort of like pumpy metabolites style of techniques where initially you get like quite a high response from it and maybe you get a fair bit of soreness and you have to be careful with the, your dose there um, because I've certainly done too much of that sort of thing and then completely screwed up the rest of my week. Um, it was supersets, Bulgarian split squats with um, Smith machine squats and it was, I did three sets week one. That was All a, blood flow restriction? No, 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 no. They, they were just okay, like yeah. no rest period supersets. Okay. But um, <laughs> I was horrendously sore and now I'm like, right, I'm glad I didn't program that for clients. Now I give one set of those because they, they get you. Um, so no, it's just, again, that's almost highlighting the whole, you need to be able to give yourself an appropriate dose to actually recover and adapt to rather than just giving yourself everything because you're just kind of, you'll, you'll blow your tank. Um, so no, really, really great um, kind of reasoning behind and all the different articles. I love that you reference them because maybe we can even get them linked. Well, actually we have the article linked below. So they have all the references there if they want to yeah, dig into just those. search up the author. Awesome. Uh, so I don't know, did we get to now kind of made the case for why muscle damage and kind of chasing soreness might not be the ideal path? Um, what are the practical kind of tips coming to follow that? Cool. So the model, so, so, so I think that what we did right now is kind of went against why muscle damage is a driver of, of muscle hypertrophy. And as I said before, the model that at least I'm proposing and that uh, I think uh, people like Carl Juno, uh, like Menno, uh, Menno Hanselmans, like Chris Beardley are proposing is that it seems that progressive tension overload, that is a main driver of hypertrophy. So we kind of have to think now, all right, so and this is the model that, that we want to accept. How does muscle damage play into that? How does muscle damage um, affect volume, which we are using as a driver of, of increasing uh, tension? And there was an interesting study done by Farid et al. in 2017, uh, where what they did is they made people do eight sets of 10 to failure on the bench press. So as you can imagine, they were horrendously sore, got a tremendous amount of muscle damage because going to failure just does that. And they wanted to see Okay, well, so after this this hell of a protocol, how long does it take for people to to recover strength and total work capacity? And they measured this at 24, 48, 72, and 96 hours after the protocol. And they saw that at 96 hours, uh, strength returned. So it took four days for, for, for strength to return after this very damaging protocol. But total work capacity didn't return in that time. So... If, if we're sort of trying to train each muscle group at least two times per week, which seems at least to be uh, 
to, to be beneficial when it comes to accumulating more volume and doing it with, with a high uh, training quality, then we can run into some problems. Because if it's taking you four days to recover from this sort of very damaging protocol, um, then that, that is going to to, uh, to to play into how much volume you're going to be able to accumulate in, la in later training sessions as seen here. So the first thing that I think that we kind of need to talk about is that if you are accumulating a whole bunch of damage, it seems that that is going to really uh, affect your ability to, to perform to perform more volume later on in the week, especially if we're trying to train things more than once a week. And I think that this is probably why uh, bro splits were what they were because people got in there, absolutely destroyed the muscles. And it's like, yeah, after four days, you can't really do as much volume. You can't really have that good of a training protocol as highlighted in this in the study. So let's just train each muscle group once per week so we can absolutely murder ourselves and be in some masochistic pain. Yeah, I think that it's a brilliant kind of highlighting why that became what people did because I think bodybuilders just out and out often without being smart would just go and destroy a muscle group and that's almost they'd leave the gym kind of that typical leaving the gym like hobbling after a leg day or like they're they can't touch their shoulder because their bicep pump's so big that <laughs> I sort miss of doing thing. that <laughs> yeah i know i i can actually vividly remember in sessions training until i couldn't do that and that was my that was yep. like my uh, biofeedback for whether or not i'd had a good uh, bicep workout so no that really highlights it really well where we have um kind of in many ways, I think it kind of surrounds itself to um, some of the volume landmark work by Mike Isertel and James Hoffman in terms of like, if you're trying to do a certain amount of volume in a week, kind of you have to think about how you then spread that to get the most amount of quality um, and not doing too much in one go because then, yeah, you, your quality goes down the drain. Um, and it's why kind of if you're, you can't have the highest amount of volume, the highest amount of relative or absolute intensity and kind of see the best progress, you have to have a balance of the two. Um, so I think that that really well explains that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that it does really kind of play into, into account the fact that we maybe training for splitting things out into different training frequencies won't necessarily lead to greater hypertrophy just because you did it two times rather than one time per week. But I think that the main driver of, of frequency improving muscle hypertrophy is probably that better exercise quality that you get in there from not having to do like 20 sets of chest in a day yeah i think in, apart from obviously having we've spoken about too much volume maybe in one session uh being kind of not a very good thing to do because of the amount of recovery that it's going to provide again too high training intensities could potentially be one as well where um, obviously when we like you said when you train to failure the likelihood that you're going to get a load of muscle damage and soreness after that is quite high that can then again kind of hit our volume how much we can get in there um, i think some other ones that I think were mentioned in the article as well, they're kind of switching out exercises all the time. So mm -hmm. that novelty yeah, effect that we that. spoke about, kind of dropping in, change your exercises all the time is probably gonna cause a lot of damage, but not productive growth. Um, and then just being very careful, like if you're doing new exercises, start off with a small amount of volume that you can then, like you said, you get, you adapt to it and then you can provide more growth going forward. So um, no, I think really well explained. I think people should check out the article. Uh, I don't know if you've got any other kind of comments to make on that. Right. Yeah, I have quite, I have two two points that I kind of want to make for the practical applications, and that is yeah, touching on what you said about switching up new exercises. So if we go back to that paper by Demosidal, uh, the one where they measured uh, myofibrillopathy synthesis, muscle damage, and and um, and, and muscle growth, then uh, what we can sort of tell there is that if you are constantly switching out new exercises, then you are constantly kind of taking your body before that repeat about effect and causing a lot of damage. And what we can see in that paper is that when damage is the highest, even if protein synthesis is the highest, that is sort of, you aren't going to get optimal muscle hypertrophy. So if you're constantly switching out new exercises, you are constantly putting yourself in that phase where damage is high and that will probably have some negative impacts on muscle hypertrophy. You're also going to feel sore and that will likely reduce the total amount of volume that you can do. So my sort of, uh, practical recommendation and, and and I think that you will agree with this Steve is that the main compound movements the ones that cause the most amount of muscle damage I like to sort of keep those in for at least like 8 to 12 weeks uh, it, it depends on on the athlete it depends on, on whether people get bored or not if someone wants to shoot themselves after after four weeks of back squats then client adherence is the number one thing but if, if I can sort of get away with it I'll, I'll 
I'll try to have those main movements in there for at least eight to 12 weeks. Yeah, it makes really good sense. You kind of get that good. Uh, it's kind of like just you learn it, then you get that momentum and then you get really good at it. I always describe it like when you're riding a bike or even when you learn to drive a car, like initially it's really awkward and uncomfortable. Then as you get really, really good at it, you can get to destinations faster so you actually see better growth and it's only after a while that potentially like you said adherence um, and potentially staleness and those sort of things that could mm-hmm. lead to someone wanting to change a movement or injury or something along those lines so no brilliant um, really exciting stuff um, and I think uh, the audience will really appreciate your kind of work on that and hearing what you had to say um, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is probably if we touch on the next article that you're working on just what you found so far um, what the listeners can kind of look forward to as the next article coming along from us. Um, and yeah, just run with that. And then we can always go on to some other bits afterwards. Awesome. Yeah. So the listeners will be will, will be glad to hear the fact that I'm going to be, or I am almost finishing up an article on CBD oil and how it impacts our resistance training. I think that a lot of, of work that has kind of been talking about CBD uh, recently kind of talks about, so when we look at THC, when we look at CBD, the, the main beneficial actions when, when it comes to these things are through the, through the cannabinoid, cannabinoid receptors, uh, CB1 and CB2. And a lot of work that is often cited is about the benefits that uh, binding to these receptors can have and, and the, the many wonderful things that these receptors can do. Uh, as been talked about uh, ad nauseum, uh, decrease inflammation, decrease stress, decrease anxiety, induce sleep, uh, all these things. And THC is a, is, a, can, can, is very powerful at binding to these receptors. When we talk about a receptor, a receptor in the brain or a receptor anywhere else, not everything binds to the receptor in the same way. There are some things that are going to have higher receptor affinity and some things that are going to have lower receptor affinity. CBD oil has, has very low affinity actually for CB1 and CB2. But it does, have to, it does seem to have benefits in other receptors. So sort of what this article is going to be looking at is going to be looking at, all right, well, what does the evidence say about how uh, CBD can actually decrease anxiety and induce sleep and cause relaxation in people who don't necessarily have a high amount of anxiety? It seems that CBD does, does have benefits in people who have anxiety, who have kind of these issues at, at more of a clinical state. But I, I, I'm looking at it, how does this affect us resistance-trained athletes who might not have? Sure, all, I think we all have a, a, a little bit of, of anxiety, but not that, 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 that like debilitating anxiety that a lot of people who are using these products do have. I want to look at that. I'm also going to be looking at the effects that it can have on relaxation. And further, I want to, uh, or I'm going to be looking at if, if this can have anti-inflammatory uh, benefits to the point to where it can actually blunt hypertrophy because we do know that if we take constant anti-inflammatories uh, post-workout or even antioxidants post-workout this can have a, a this can blunt muscle hypertrophy so what i'm going to be looking at is all right well is cbd oil powerful enough to actually do this and a lot of these the, the, these companies, they aren't quite looking at stuff for resistance-trained athletes, even though resistance-trained athletes are sort of promoting it. Steve, I think, like we said, is because a lot of these people have codes for them and can benefit a lot from them. So I just really want to be the first one to objectively look at it for athletes. And this article is, is going to be objective. I'm not going to be either completely destroying them or completely putting them on a pedestal. It will be just what the science says. And this is what I love about Miguel and what he puts out because I, like I said to you off air, Miguel, I think a lot of people um, reach out to you and look at your stuff because they trust in what you're saying and that you're not affiliated with any companies. You don't have any kind of um, object, like any other side objective that you're trying to get across. You're just literally a scientist and you're trying to kind of find the truth. Um, something I'm really interested in, it, obviously you've been looking into CBD much more heavily than I have, but whenever I looked into it, um, and like I said, I haven't done a lot of research, I didn't find a lot of human data on CBD oil specifically. Um, what's mm-hmm. the data been like that you've been looking at and how much has been kind of very useful? Like how much of it is actually like, how much is it you just waiting for actually decent studies? 
a lot of it is just waiting for decent studies. I don't think that we have enough human data. I don't think that we have enough human data on CBD itself. We have quite a bit of, uh, of data on THC and the effects that that can have on the CBD receptors, but not quite so much on the, on the extent that CBD can have on these receptors or anywhere else. And then we have even like the, the amount that we have on people who are healthy and who don't have, like, like I said, these very uh, kind of like clinical uh, psychological or these clinical psychological states is even lower. So I think that people like to look at research in, 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 in other populations that don't necessarily apply to them and use that as, Hey, look at this. But it's, it's like if someone doesn't have that degree of anxiety and they're taking CB, maybe it won't take you from like just being normal to even being more relaxed. It might just not do anything. So that that's kind of where I want to go with this and where I want further research to be done is, all right, well, it, what will it do for me? Because I think, Steve, as, as you have seen, I get anxious at pretty much literally nothing. Um, I'm, 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 a, I'm a very calm person. So I wonder if CBD can do anything for, for me or, or for people who maybe get anxious over like, all right, well, if you have like a test that's worth like 80% of your grade, you, you, you're obviously going to have some anxiety for that. But other than that, what, what can it do for, for the average Joe? Yeah, I think that would be really beneficial. And I'm glad I asked you the question on the studies because I think a lot of people just they hear that there's a study supporting it and that could be cherry picked. It could be for someone who isn't even, that's like some of the golden rules of looking at studies is, is it applicable to you as a individual or is it done on someone who's completely different to you or on a rat, um, which is quite often the case. So right. Is it done in a Petri dish? And yeah. then a lot of these studies are. And something that interests me with it as well is from what I've seen as well, there seems to be a lot of different forms of it in that there's CBD oil, then there's like hemp water, there's like people vaping it. And I'm assuming that there's, I mean, the fact there's lacking research just on CBD oil, that then all of these different types that are coming out, again, how do, can we even be sure that they're doing anything? I think that we can't right now. I think that first of all, we need to sort of do the research on on uh, whether CBD oil is beneficial in and out of itself. Uh, again, it does seem to be beneficial in people who have who are in clinical psychological states. But I think that seeing whether it can have an impact on just the average Joe, we need to do that research and then kind of look at all right, well, what is the most appropriate method of having this? I think that most people. And, and most of the evidence does seem to be into that CBD uh, kind of like liquid extract uh, that you you often see people use with with with, with a little dropper. But I think that we need further evidence. Think, all right, well, what how, how does this compare to uh, orally ingesting it or vaping it or sm yeah smoking it because that, that's the main way people get THC, for example. Yeah, it's super interesting, and I think the only final thing that I want to hammer home with this is. Just like any supplement, uh, you have to, like, there needs to be a wealth of evidence before, like, you or me would ever promote it. So, for, like, resistance training athletes, I think the list is just so small um, for actual, like, evidence-based things that are really going to have some help there. And then when we think about supplements, even something like we hear creatine is something, creatine monohydrate is something that all kind of resistance training athletes should probably be taking. And even then, the difference between you not taking it and taking it is minimal so again these supplements sometimes can cost a hefty amount and sometimes it's just not worth that investment for something that you're just especially at the moment not sure of mm -hmm, right and I think that the the evidence on CBD for resistance trained athletes is, is so low that I think that the main way that the, the main mechanism of action that it would have wouldn't quite be on on being an anti-inflammatory or, or anything like that it would I, I think at least for now it would be just through sheer relaxation so I think that if you can find another way to relax to unwind to do stuff like that um, then I think that that would probably have a similar beneficial effect uh, you just doing things like being with your significant other um, having a sports massage watching your favorite show, going out and, eat, and eating good food, getting enough sleep, those things are going to be kind of the, the main drivers of, of, of that effect. Some people can't do those things without having tremendous anxiety. But if you can, if you can just shut off your brain, read a book, watch a show, 
then I think that that is going to have very similar effects on on on, on relaxation. Perfect. Yeah, and I just want to make it obvious because we you already said it, but I think from the outside in, it might seem like we're being very negative about CBD. I think it's just more so being realistic in the fact that we don't want people to be spending money that is not warranted. And like you said, like some of those, like the relaxation, what's it called? Um, something touch, sensual touch or something along those lines. I can't remember what mm. it's called in the research, but that's actually got like heavily, like good research indicating yeah. things like massages and like... Um, yeah touch from a loved one uh, and yeah just it seems like, to touch just touch in general from a human being can can promote relaxation which is very funny to go yeah yeah just, just being touched by another person see I, I think by a person you trust sort of i don't think you know <laughs> just a random guy <laughs> i think one tends to to trust massage parlors um at least I hope so. <laughs> I hope you can trust them uh, but that does some see seem to promote relaxation quite a bit yeah, I think it's a case of typical human behavior. We're looking for something that's kind of almost shortcutting so we can, it's much easier to go and take something than have to actively go and like think about relaxing. Like, oh, I can take this and this will relax me. Um, but it, it doesn't quite always work like that. But anyway, um, I thought that was really interesting. And then something I did want to touch on, and maybe CBD is related to this, but uh, I think I'd be really interested to hear, Miguel, what you think at the moment are kind of some of the, the myths or the the things that are coming out in the industry that kind of are maybe upsetting and potentially one you recently talked about I think would be really cool to actually touch on is obviously yesterday was Thanksgiving um, and there's personal trainers out there giving all sorts of funny advice um, whether or not it's like how to manage Thanksgiving and not eat you, kind of your face off and then other people just telling you to go completely the opposite way and I thought you had a really great message about that um, so I don't know if you want to talk to that first. Right. Cool. Yeah. I actually got so many DMs, some people being like, thank you so much for saying this. So yeah, as it was, it was Thanksgiving in the States yesterday and a lot of these big fitness accounts, I think became very popular by kind of taking the extreme out of fitness and, you know, very good for them. And with this, they started to propagate that, all right, well in Thanksgiving and your birthday on, on in Christmas, don't worry about, about your, your eating tendencies. Don't worry about any eating history that you have. Just go grab a plate, enjoy a ton of food, and go back to regular life. But some people just can't do this. Like Some people have had serious eating disorders, have had anorexia, bulimia, binging, purging. And for them, they can't just get a plate of food, stuff their face one day, and go back to regular life the next one. So I think that when, when, when we're looking at the advice that these big fitness accounts are, are, are giving, you can't just take everything, you can't just tell everyone to, under no circumstances should you deny yourself this pleasure of overeating on Thanksgiving. I think that that is similar to telling an alcoholic, hey, on your birthday, on Christmas, just have a drink. Don't, don't worry about your, your, your addiction. Just have a drink and then the next day don't. Some people can't just do this. Some people are going to binge on Thanksgiving and then and then go throw up and do hours of cardio and not eat for three days afterwards or some people are going to binge and then binge for a week. So I think that we always have to take the fitness industry as a whole when we're giving this th th this advice and take into account that in this industry we are dealing with a lot of people who have had a lot of serious eating disorders and we can't just tell people under no circumstance should you be denied the, 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 the holiness of this incredible meal. You know, there are those people, there are people in contest prep, and there are people who just like doing this, this will just cause a lot of mental acrobatics. So I think that when it comes to these holidays, and, and I think that we're also going to be releasing a, a holiday article that I'm also working on. Um, I think that really the best thing to do is just whatever will cause you the least amount of stress and whatever you are okay with. I think that it is very, it's kind of an uncomfortable conversation to have with yourself to decide what you will be the most comfortable with. I think that it, it's very uncomfortable to be like, hey, I, I can't, I can't have a three plates of, of, Thanksgiving, of Thanksgiving dinner. But if you have that conversation with yourself and you admit to yourself, I'm not ready for this yet, then that will lead to a much more enjoyable holiday for yourself. Yeah, I love that perspective because um, I think it, it, to, to quote, I think it's from like Spider-Man or something, with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. And um, I very much feel like 
like on this podcast, we have thousands of views, thousands of listeners, um, and we have a responsibility to put out information that we feel is going to be helpful. Um, so giving out black and white advice like that, um, as people know, we love the shades of gray on this podcast. Uh, it's important to give context and kind of really mm-hmm. feel out every person that you you could be impacting. And like you said, some of these big fitness accounts, they probably actually have got big by being that kind of black and white hard lined. But in reality, what impact are they having that's really positive? Uh, it may be way overshadowed by those who are looking in and being kind of really kind of unfortunately harmed by some of the messages that they're giving out. And I definitely see it myself where there are either camps where very strictly like I, actually, I think the biggest camp is basically just people are saying like you shouldn't diet over these periods of time, like you said. Anti-diet culture. Yeah, it's 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 not really. It's never the perspective I've had. It's always been kind of my my easy perspective, I guess. My vanilla approach is always kind of what do what makes you feel most happy. Because mm-hmm. what are these social occasions about? They're about family, friends, loved ones. They shouldn't really about be about the food. And so whatever allows you to relax and be with your loved ones and enjoy the moment as best as possible. For some of you, that might mean like eating a load of extra food and really like indulging somewhat. And that's okay if most of the year you're pretty much on point, like you're not going to be in a problem. But if you are someone who's had a problem with kind of binging and those sort of behaviors, then probably that isn't a solution for you. And probably you do want to manage it a little bit better. Uh, and something I, I, I'd like to hear what your views on this quote is um, kind of a, see people push the quote of kind of memories over macros. And this is always it makes me laugh because when I think of that quote, I think that's coming from a person who is only considering the food as the memory, surely, because they're kind of mm-hmm. talking about memories over macros. So it's just a it's a strange dynamic within the industry. I think when people they don't maybe some people just don't think about it enough. Mm-hmm. I think that one can impact the other. So I think that people, I think that everyone has sort of a calorie range to which they can, maybe it would, it will make them enjoy the occasion a little bit more or that won't have a detrimental impact on on, on the occasion. Uh, Steve, I think I'm going to use you as an example here. I think that, uh, for example, you like to stay Within, you know, probably now that now that you're that you're bulking within a, a few hundred uh, calories, that if you go kind of if you hit this minimum or you hit this maximum, you're happy. And I'm using you as an example because I don't really track macros, so like, yeah, I can't use it myself. But right now, uh, let's say for example, uh, you're comfortable. I, I don't know your numbers, but you're comfortable eating somewhere between 3,400 and 4,000 calories a day. Let, let's say that if you hit 4,000 calories a day, all right, maybe you went over, but you're not mad about it. If then I tell you, all right, Steve, uh, memories over macros, let's go out, let's go to Italy and let's have, you know, let's have chocolate pizza for breakfast, let's have a pasta for lunch, and let's have a calzone for dinner and then a pizza for dinner number two. And you're going to hit 6,000 calories, all right? Now, you don't have an eating disorder, but you ate so much that it probably ruined your goals for that week. And now the memory is going, it's, it's not going to be as good because because it's going to be filled with, Hey, like, Oh my gosh, like why did I eat like that? Why, why did I do this to myself? So I think that memories over macros is kind of one of those things that, that has a range where, all right, well you can push so much outside of your, uh, outside of your calorie target. But if you just like completely go overboard, it will actually ruin the memory. And if you just don't eat anything, then it will, it will also ruin the memory because you're going to be like, oh, well, probably could have enjoyed some food and not been the guy that brought a Tupperware full of chicken and Brussels sprouts to, to, to Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, I think it's just a, it's a good point. And it, something that's reminding me of what you're saying there is kind of, um, I, I think it was from Dan John originally, it was kind of eat like an adult, kind of that. Yeah. <laughs> everyone knows what that really means. Obviously, in, in reality, a lot of adults eat terribly, uh, but eating like an adult just means everyone listening to this part like podcast they're there they would eat like an adult they know what that means it means eat mindfully don't kind of go crazy there's no point in it um and yeah i i don't know i think it's a strange topic that people get really stressed about um and for mm-hmm. the most part i think yeah the message you gave out on that was really really positive so um, i have to thank you for that and i think a lot of people um like you said you got lots of dms because it was a really good message mm-hmm. so i don't know if there's anything else recently that's kind of cropped up actually i did want to highlight the fact you spoke about the article that we'll be working on and i think we're gonna do a three-way podcast at some point where we get us all on pascal as well um to talk about yeah a, a holiday article how to approach the holidays and mm-hmm. we don't yeah, get christmas wanna... holidays 
Yeah, just holidays in general, and I think we're going to be telling us tell, telling because we we've been there. We we have been those people kind of bringing Tupperware or measuring or whatever at dinner. So I, I kind of propose the idea to you guys about us telling like the biggest kind of you know fitness fanatic story we we've had. I think people are going to laugh at mine. Uh, I won't tell you guys quite what it is, but it's actually quite terrible. <laughs> I've actually funny on that topic. I've only once in my life taken a scale to a restaurant. Have you have you actually ever done it, Miguel? No, I haven't. I've ordered stuff that I can like track, like just ordering like sashimi or nigiri or stuff like that. But I'm, I haven't quite taken one to, to to a restaurant yet. But maybe if I hadn't been with family who would have like kicked my ass, I, I probably would have. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, mine was in contest prep in 2014. Okay. And I didn't really know any better, but um, it wasn't a fun experience at all. <laughs> like I can just to not that it's that interesting a memory, but putting on a jack of potato on the scale and then having to cut more than half of it away and put, put it to the side and be like, I can't eat that. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a distressing experience. So sure. oh, I, I didn't know really any better at the time, but. Um, or maybe I might have even done it more than once, you know. I might have done it twice in that prep. <laughs> it might be Nando's and Harvester, which are two oh, chains. Other memories are coming back. Yeah, yeah, these are not good memories. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if there's any other things you wanted to, um, anything you really wanted to say or highlight that you've seen out there that maybe you can share with the audience that you feel like isn't a good message or is kind of some myth-busting that you wanted to share. I think that... Um, one thing that is kind of getting on my gears and I, you hear me rant about this daily, I think Steve is the glucose disposal agents. Um, I think that a lot of people have, it's another, one of those things that people just started, started to propagate. I think that talking about insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity is a very interesting topic that people aren't quite qualified to speak of, but it does sound very cool. And I think that it is important for the listeners to understand that Insulin sensitivity is mostly uh, affected by your body weight, by uh, your, your amount of body fat, and by your physical activity. If we are talking about our population of people, which is most, mostly lean individuals, because within, the, the, within what is considered to be lean in, in, in resistance training literature, you're lean. Like, mo like all of us are, are, are lean individuals. We're not obese. We're not – I think very few of us are actually what the literature would con consider a high amount of body fat. Maybe you don't look quite the way you are, but you're still considered lean. Um, if, if we're looking at lean people, training three to seven times per week, as many of you I'm sure probably do, um, resistance training, you have muscle mass, your insulin sensitivity is most likely fine unless you have some sort of clinical issue, you have diabetes, you have some sort of undiagnosed thing, your insulin sensitivity is most likely fine and it doesn't matter, you know, you're eating like 800 grams of carbs a day bulking or it doesn't matter um, if, if you're spending a lot of time sitting down, your insulin sensitivity is probably fine and these people are just kind of selling these very, very expensive, cool sounding products to, to people saying, hey, like you, you need to improve nutrient partitioning, you need to, um, you, your P ratio, like just selling all these things that don't quite have a lot of science to them. And one thing that I like to sort of tell people is like, all right, let's look at NFL linemen. They're probably like 20% body fat probably sometimes more. Do you think they have an issue with insulin sensitivity? Do you think that they're smashing down cheeseburgers and fries or whatever the, the case may be and their body isn't responding well to it and they're mostly gaining fat and not muscle mass anymore? No, they're not. So if we look at people who are, who are who have a high amount of muscle mass, people who are resistance training, people who are very active, you aren't going to be running into issues with insulin sensitivity and you aren't going to need some sort of like berberin-based product in order to boost it. Yeah, I think it's, again, it's probably similar in many ways to that CBD where it's like that small, like there's a, maybe some small evidence showing some mechanistic data on some sort of people with not a load of evidence behind it. And then it's like, oh, this sounds like it's probably beneficial, so I'm just going to go with it. Um, and people have started running with it. And again, people are uh, affiliated with people that sell these things. And so it becomes one of those things. And I think, yeah, insulin is is an incredibly interesting topic and um, a lot of people are kind of getting obsessed with those things and um, whenever I've spoken to like yourself about it or Eric Helm, Mike Isretel, they've always said that it's one of those things where even if it was having any positive impact, I don't think you'd 
ever know you like it would be something you wouldn't even like ever realize um, and that neither of them and neither of us recommend those sort of products uh, and it, I guess on a related note I would like to hear your thoughts on kind of monitoring blood glucose as like a healthy non-diabetic natural athlete mm-hmm. I think that if you are going to do this, you're, you're pretty much spending your wheels. Sure, you're giving yourself one more thing to track on, which most of us like don't quite need. We're already tracking that enough things. Um, and you're giving yourself something to track that you might not necessarily have, have, have a control over. Like if you have one gluc- blood glucose reading that is high, what are you going to do about it? Are you going – let's say – that your calories are good, carbs are good. You're you're gaining at an appropriate weight. Your 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 muscle gain is going well, um, and you have a high your your blood glucose readings are high, not high clinically, but just high from what whatever you you want them to be for whatever reason. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to decrease calories because your 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 progress in the gym is going well? You're gaining muscle mass. You're energized. So why would you decrease calories? Why would you decrease carbs? Why would you increase fats? I think that if, if if you are tracking blood glucose, you are tracking a variable that you might not not might not necessarily have control over, or you might not know how to control. And I think that switching like 20 grams of, of carbs for a little bit more fat, or doing these things, isn't going to actually have a measurable impact. On, on your on, on on the effects that the blood glucose readings might have sure it might have like an effect of like 0.01 but what is that actually practically going to do for your muscle mass for your health um, and for all the parameters that blood glucose might might have an effect on so I do think that people that try to monitor this change it whatever they're just doing something that they can have a very minor control over if any at all and that then won't have a practical implication and this is a good point always think about what is the practical application of this what is this going to do for your health your muscle and your performance yeah i think that was brilliant you put in that like already if you're tracking three macronutrients that's quite a lot to track along with like your training numbers um if you're then monitoring or thinking about your sleep um and things like this it's already quite a lot to think about and i don't know about you miguel but whenever i've um tried to make my coaching or even my training more complicated tracking more variables and i love data it's actually only ever led to worse results because it ends up taking the eye off the ball of the most important things and i found the simpler the thing the, the better the results. Like basically, the simpler my program, the simpler the number of variables that I need to measure that actually have an efficacious result, the better the result. Definitely, and especially when you're busy. Um, so even tracking calories for me gives me a variable that is a little bit too much at, at the time. So I think that you also need to ask yourselves, all right, well, what variables am I willing to track? Um, does will this have a, a, a significant impact on my ability to gain muscle or something like that? And am I okay with this? So for example, me, maybe some days I overeat, maybe some days I undereat. I don't think so because my eating is very consistent. I've learned how to do this. But maybe I could gain a little bit quicker if I tracked and sort of forced myself to eat. But currently I'm okay with it because I am studying and working like 12 to 14 hours a day. And, and it's just something that I can't currently do. Sometimes I just need to gra- grab something very quick from the cafeteria and not track it or just have multiple protein bars and see where my hunger is at. Yeah, I think an important point you said there was that the fact is if you're tracking like even your body weight at certain periods of time. Mm-hmm, I do track tr- that. Exactly. You're tracking that. You're tracking – you know you're getting insufficient protein and you're tr- tracking training performance by doing all of that you're already by default knowing whether or not you're having sufficient calories so without tracking that you're actually kind of you're doing other things that allow you not to need to track that that level which i think is brilliant and that brings back to like blood glucose uh, monitoring in that if you are lean your training performance is good you feel well and all of these variables are indicating positive things why do you you don't need a blood glucose monitor to tell you um that this is going well because it is so it's almost like is that data really helpful data or is it just data just for the sake of data? I think if you're using anything like that, there has to be a clear rationale behind it and it's not just data for data's sake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I do think that even if you were to track it for a long period of time, it's not going to give you a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of useful information. And yeah, just, just track the, the, the data that you can and that you can do something about and that you're willing to track. Like, 
I don't want her to make it seem like I don't track anything. It's like my, my training is very well thought out. Uh, obviously, for lower body, I do whatever Dr. Quinn Hanock tells me to. And then for upper body and, and for like, a, like the isolation leg stuff, I do have a very uh, well planned, very tracked, very periodized. Um, I track body weight. And um, yes, I think I, I track sleep, steps. And, and those things just kind of allow me to not track calories. All those things are very easy to track. The phone just kind of tracks its, itself. It's on my pocket all day, body weight just as soon as you get up. And then uh, training is, is the only thing that takes time. But I love training so much. I love program training. Obviously, I'm dedicating like <laughs> over 10 years of, of studying into this. So that that's absolutely no issue for me. Yeah, I think I was trying to think. I think it's HbA1c. If mm. that gives you like a six-month like average of what your levels have been. And I think that has been, from what I've heard from talking to Broderick and Mike, they said, if you're going to track anything, have a look at that rather than just seeing kind of a daily kind of number um, or like check it irregularly. So yeah, brilliant. I don't think we need to talk any more on that. We've already been an hour and I want to say an absolute thank you to you, Miguel, for coming on, having a chat with me. Um, I want to say thank you to the audience and um, I want to make sure we talked about, obviously, the, we have the episode the article rather link below um, so people can check us out there they can check out um, Miguel on our coaching page and you can kind of yeah have a look at our services there if you were interested in kind of um, having Miguel as your coach and also I want to make sure they can reach out to you because I know you're on YouTube and also over on Instagram so are those probably the two best places for people to reach out to you yeah so on Instagram is at mblacute so m-b-l-a-c-u-t-t and then on YouTube is uh, Miguel Blacute. And uh, if you also want to check me over on Facebook, I think I started to post a little bit more on there. I kind of break down a few studies, get my thoughts. So you can add me on there or follow me or whatever people do on Facebook. Awesome. Yeah, we'll have that link below. And he's part of our Revive Stronger group as well over on Facebook. So if you're part of that, then mm -hmm. Miguel's a moderator over on there. So if you've got questions and things, he's always answering there. So thank you guys for listening. We will catch you soon. Take care.